You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to the Record Podcast, the voice of the Archdiocese of Perth. Hello and welcome to the Record. I'm Jamie O'Brien. Today we are speaking with the Australian journalist Greg Sheridan, who has recently authored his second book, Christians: The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. Greg, thank you for joining us today. Great to be with you, Jamie. It's actually my eighth book, but it's my second about Christianity. So, Greg, uh, can you tell us what this new book is about? The book is called Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. And what I've done uh, is try to find Jesus directly through the uh, New Testament and through his first friends, and then in the second half of the book to meet his friends uh, today. And um, so the book has chapters on the crucifixion, on why the New Testament is historically accurate. There's been a great swing in scholarship and archaeology back to validating the historical accuracy of the New Testament. Then uh, chapters about Paul and Mary and angels. And then in the um, in the second half of the book, um, uh, a consideration of Christianity and popular culture and then profiles of various interesting Christians today. A couple of things lay behind the book, or what is it about? Um, first of all, I read the... Uh, New Testament as a journalist. So people have read it as a lawyer or sometimes as a physician or as a scientist, and that's that's yielded interesting material. I read the stories of the Gospels as a journalist. I think too often um, we miss that. Uh, Christians, quite rightly, meditate on specific passages, and atheists have their little passages which they think discredit the Bible, and that's all they know about it. It's It's rare, I think, to read the, the New Testament, a book at a time, looking for narrative and incident and character. So I read, uh, say, the Gospel of Luke as a journalist, looking for Luke's sources and his narrative. And you can see that Luke has all these great scoops about Mary. So obviously Mary was his source, I think. And then you find fantastic human characters in the Gospel. It's a much richer, uh, more human story than people normally give it credit for. There's a lot of, uh, there's even a bit of fun in it. You know, Paul mm-hmm. is a wonderfully irascible, uh, bad-tempered at times, cranky, uh, uh, you know, writer, as well as being a magnificent Christian teacher. But there's there's great fun in it. You know, he has to struggle with uh, fundraising and um, gets very cranky at people who disagree with him. He, in the book of Galatians, he says he wishes all the people misleading the Galatians would go and castrate themselves. There's a lovely passage in Peter where he says, I know Paul is a bit hard to understand, a bit hard to take sometimes, but he's my beloved brother and he's an, you know, he's, his writings of scripture. So there's an attempt to appreciate the humanity uh, of the gospel, which we, I think we often gloss over because we, we read it in little bits. And then, of course, the magnificent figure of Mary. She has so much agency in history. She's not... Uh, She's not a passive person. She's a, she's a magnificent, decisive uh, figure in uh, in history. And then the final two points I'm going to finish with. The other thing is the book argues that actually the most radical thing about Christianity is not the resurrection, but the crucifixion. I mean, a lot of uh, religious traditions have the idea of God or a God interacting with human beings or walk, walking on the earth or something like Krishna, normally in the time before time, normally in a mythical time. But Christianity, I think, is the only religious sensibility which I've ever known, which has God, the omnipotent, omniscient, eternal God, not only become a human being, but suffer defeat and death and humiliation mm-hmm. and degradation. It's, it's the most radical idea 
in human history. And I sometimes because we're familiar with our religion, we just forget how strange and radical uh, the gospel is. Uh, so that, those were some some of the thoughts that lay behind it, Jamie. Greg, uh, what inspired you to write it? You know, you, looking at your your events or of your life, your experiences. You know, what have you lived in recent times as, that has influenced you? Well, a couple of things inspired me to write it, Jamie. This is my second book on Christianity, and um, the first book was called "God Is Good for You." And um, somebody said to me, "Look, it's not a bad effort, Greg, at arguing for the rationality of belief in God, but." Where is the living Jesus? And, of course, Jesus, the personality of Jesus is the centre of Christianity. So I wanted to try to uh, provide an encounter with Jesus. And, of course, you know, I'm infinitely less good at that than the Gospels themselves. The best thing is to read the Gospels. But, you know, a modern audience can relate to, to the Jesus in the Gospels. The other thing is, looking back now, it seems to me that these two books, God is Good for You and um, Christians, they're, they're two halves, really, of an answer to the modern uh, dilemma. So the, the modernist project of disenchantment over the last two or 300 years has been to remove God from human life. And it's rested on two propositions. The first is that uh, God is dead, that science has ruled there is no God. And the second is that the New Testament is all lies or mythology or completely unreliable. So the first book, God is Good for You, deals with the first proposition. Science has made no such statement about God. It's not qualified to make such a statement. And there is nothing in science which um, is damaging to, to the idea of God. So I don't try to prove God rationally, but simply to show that God is completely uh, reasonable. There's nothing in reason which is against belief. It's absolutely reasonable to believe. In fact, I think it's intellectually compelling, but I don't argue that you can finally prove God through reason. And then the second book, uh, Christians, tackles the other great lie of the project of disenchantment, which is that the that the New Testament is a myth or a, a long um, oral legend or something like this. And in fact, all of that old-fashioned um, Jesus' scepticism that emerged out of German biblical scholarship a couple of hundred years ago has really been discredited by modern archaeology and so on. I mean, archaeology keeps finding discoveries which validate the New Testament. We found a scrap of John's Gospel, which couldn't be later than the first part of the second century, which shows that all the Gospels were written by the end of the first century. In fact, I think they were written much earlier than that, as do most modern scholars. And uh, I thought... The, the only thing that people hear about the Gospels in popular culture is that they're all lies. You know, you get a film like The Da Vinci Code or something which says Christians didn't even believe that Jesus was God until the fourth century and all the Gospels were made up and so on. Whereas in reality, modern, modern audiences should know that, in fact, all the scholarship is telling us that the, the Gospels were written at the time they said they were written. History can establish that Jesus was a real person, that he was crucified, uh, that he lived under the rule of Pontius Pilate. And while history can't establish the resurrection, it can establish and does establish that very soon after the resurrection, Christians were teaching the resurrection. Now, and I thought that's interesting for, for modern people to know. You know, our poor old kids at school, they're never going to hear any of this. Um, I mean, they might at a Catholic school, but in, a, in, a, in the normal state education mm. and uh, in the popular culture, they're never going to hear any of this. So the book offers a, a small corrective to that great yawning gap in our popular culture. Greg, if you don't mind me asking, where did your faith come into this as well? 
Well, I've always been a Catholic, Jamie, and um, uh, I make no great claims for my own Catholicism. I mean, people often say, you know, tell us your own faith story. And uh, my faith story is just the same as that of millions of Catholics, really. I was born into, I was very lucky to be born into a, um, a family uh, that believed and practiced uh, the faith. And um, uh, God was always uh, in our household, so to speak. And um, I had a little sister who died. And we always were talking to and about uh, little Mary. Um, I've never myself had any difficulty with belief. I've had the greatest difficulty living up to any kind of uh, Christian life. Uh, you know, I wouldn't want anyone ever to judge Christianity by my life. But um, but it's just always seemed to me kind of self-evidently true, the Christian story. And mm -hmm. um, uh, so I guess the question was really... Um, after 40 years in journalism, I finally worked out what the big story is, but uh, mm. better to get there late than never, you know. Yes, <laughs> well done. So what then do you believe is the significance of the gospel for people today and, and why? Well, people sometimes say about the subtitle, so the book is called Christians and the subtitle is The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. And two, two words in the subtitle sometimes perplex people. They say, what is urgent about it? And why did you say the case for Jesus? The publisher originally proposed the subtitle, The Urgent Case for Christianity. But our faith is a living faith. It's an incarnational faith. It's about human beings. And the human being at the centre of our faith, who is also God, is, is Jesus. And I think there was a certain imperative to draw attention back to the person of Jesus. And then why do I call it urgent? Well, of course, if you read the Gospels and the, and the letters, they cry out with their urgency. John especially is, is just dumbstruck, awestruck constantly by the majesty of what he's experienced through uh, Jesus. Paul is like this too. And they are, again, very similar to journalists who have front page stories burning holes in their pockets. and They've got to get out and tell people the story. Mm. But then there are other ways in which the gospel is urgent for people today. First of all, we live in a very sick and bleeding time. Uh, full of um, conflict, uh, full of terrible social distress in our own society, you know, uh, mm. domestic violence and drug abuse and uh, family breakdown and so on, um, a certain culture of death in euthanasia and uh, getting rid of unwanted children and so on. And uh, the culture needs the truth and people need the truth. And finally, the Gospels are always relevant because they're true. If they're not true, they're not relevant at all. So I, I write this book from a sort of a mere Christianity point of view. It's not denominational. No doubt, no secret, I'm a Catholic and I'm very, you know, happy to embrace my tradition. But this book is for any Christian who can sort of assert the Apostles' Creed. You know, I'm not interested mm. in this book in denominational differences. But the only part of Christianity that I find uh, difficult are those Christians who don't believe in miracles or the resurrection, the physical resurrection or whatever. I, I think if you get a watered-down Christianity and take out all of that, then I'd rather be at the races. Just forget about it. It has no meaning. Mm. You know, I'll go to the beach instead. Um, so the, the, the miracles, the miracle of the resurrection and eternal life is such an urgent story. Mm. And uh, the truth of the gospel um, is so urgent. If it's not true in all of its respects, then it's not worth anything. The mm. only reason it's worth knowing about is because it's true. And if it is true, as I believe it is, then it revolutionises all of human life. So 
you also talk about Christ and popular culture. But what are your insights there? Well, I have a long chapter. That was a great, fun chapter to write. I really enjoyed writing that chapter. So one of the difficulties people have today is that popular culture doesn't reinforce belief at any point. It it reinforces disbelief. It it aggressively tells you that uh, Christianity is a lie and is untrue. <clears throat> and if you look at popular culture even 60 years ago, the reverse was the case. So if you look at the Academy Award for best movies from, say, the 30s to the 60s, they were predominantly Christian movies. Mm. Going My Way, The Sound of Music, How Green Was My Valley. These are all um, very often religious and Christian movies. If you look at the oh. bestseller lists of books mm. from the 50s and 60s, the same. Um, Henry Morton Robinson's wonderful novel, The Cardinal. Um, Thomas Merton, the, the Trappist mm. monk, when he joined the, the Order of Monks, he he wrote a book called The Seven-Sided Mountain, sold three million copies. Mm. Then you compare that with today, and Christianity is generally either absent from the popular culture or mm. mocked and derided in the popular mm. culture. But this chapter is not just a lament from the past. It's also a very positive chapter because Christians mm. are finding their way back into the popular culture. So I examine a whole lot of things where, where Christianity has come back into the popular culture, and it's almost as if, We've gone from being Christian to being post-Christian, and now we're so post-Christian that we're pre-Christian. But there's a certain opportunity in that because the pre-Christian, as opposed to the post-Christian, hasn't learnt to mock and deride Christianity. So I look at TV series like Jane the Virgin, which was a great surprise to me. It turned out to be a very positive view of a, a Hispanic woman's Catholicism and her commitment to virginity before marriage. Mm. Wonderfully funny series, typically zany American sitcom, but but very well done, tremendously well done, great warmth. Goes mm. a bit crazy in this last series or two with some uh, some gender ideology that you might find objectionable, but but overall it's a very positive um, depiction of faith. And mm. in order to render the Hispanic community accurately, the producers had to deal with the the um, Christian belief of so many of the believers. There are other TV series like this, um, Blue Bloods, about a Catholic uh, commissioner of police in New York. Mm. And then there are great Christian novels. Um, you think of the great Christian novels of the 20th century, Evelyn Waugh and Graham Greene and so on. But there mm. are great Christian novels today. Um, mm -hmm. One in particular, um, Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2005. Ooh. And it is the reminiscence of a Congregationalist minister in his late 70s who has heart disease and is about to die. And he's mm. looking back on the life of his, um, you know, his ministry life. And uh, and he marries late in life and he's got a seven-year-old son and it's a letter to... And you, you would think nothing would be less sympathetic to the culture, yet it is a major bestseller and it won the Pulitzer Prize. So I, I write that chapter to identify themes that, that have penetrated popular culture, to look at mm. Christians who are creating popular culture in novels and movies and TV mm. series. And also just to, um, as a bit of a service to readers, to alert them to mm. great uh, great books and TV series. There's that crowdfunded series about the life of Jesus called um, The Chosen, mm. where Christians have just, you know, raised $10 million in crowdfunding and produced a very good TV series based, uh, mm. based on the Gospels. And I think, so it's not a council of despair, this chapter. It's a call to action. We need to mm. be going out and creating our own culture now. We can no longer sit back thinking that the culture respects and admires Christianity. We have yeah. to go out 
establish our own beachheads in the culture. So you, you also interview uh, some other various Christians, you know, former Deputy Prime Minister uh, John Anderson, Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Um, uh, you know, what was that like? And, um, you know, what was the highlight of this, I suppose? Well, I did that uh, in, in the previous book too, God is Good for You. And um, I interview in the second half of the book where I profile a number of um, Christians who are interesting for one reason or another. So there are, there are three women I call Christians who keep on giving. Gemma Cecilia, who's founded these wonderful schools for poor kids in Tanzania. Francis Cantrell, a graduate of Campion College who has um, created the Culture Project where, where she and her friends go out to young people and try to tell them that they are worth much more than the popular culture is, is suggesting that they have great dignity and um, they deserve love and so on. Then I interview a certain number of Christian leaders, uh, archbishops and pastors and so on. Mm -hmm. But I do interview four civil, civic or political leaders who are all Christians. John Anderson, the former Deputy Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, Bill Hayden, the former Labor leader and Foreign Minister, mm -hmm. and Peter Cosgrove, uh, the former um, Governor General and Chief of the Defence Force. Th those four men, tremendously fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, Cosgrove, Great guy, great guy, Cos, and um, very proud, good Catholic. Had never spoken before about what it was like to be a Christian believer in battle. So Cos mm. fought the Vietnam War, and he saw a lot of battle. Uh, he was a platoon commander. Mm. He saw a lot of people killed. He participated in a lot of ac uh, actions which resulted in dead people. What was it like to look on the enemy that you had slain mm. as a Christian filled with love? And Cos is a wonderful interview. Scomo, very impressive. This is not a left versus right book. I'm not endorsing or criticising his politics. Mm. But very impressive that the faith is the centre of his life. So he's a Pentecostal Christian. Mm. There aren't any other Pentecostal Christians leading OECD nations. And I think he deals with the public aspects of his faith very well. He's mm. neither doesn't try to ram it down anyone's throat, but he's very open and straightforward about it. It inspires his life. It forms his values, but he quite rightly says the Bible is not a policy handbook. It doesn't give him guidance on monetary policy or whether he should deregulate the industrial relations system. It, it animates the principles of his life. And then the final one I mentioned to you, an interview I found very moving myself, was um, Bill Hayden. So Bill had been a leading atheist and humanist all his life, uh, although he had gone to uh, Catholic infant school. And... Uh, eventually he had always been, I think, troubled by his atheism. He mm. found a terrible emptiness in atheism. He had a friendship with a nun in Brisbane and he went to see her after she'd had a heart attack and he just felt overwhelmed with the sense of holiness <clears throat> about her and he returned to God. And he told me uh, about his life, which has had some desperate straits in it. Um, he, he told me about being a kid, watching his, his father brutalise his mother and being mm. determined that he would grow up and be a policeman to stop men like that, treating women like his mother like that. Uh, he told me of a terrible tragedy in his early life when um, he and his wife had a young daughter, aged five or six, who was run down and killed in a, in a car accident. Mm. And he said he was insane with grief. He was insane with grief. And um, he says, really, he never recovered from that in his whole life, he and his wife. He, mm. These are Bill Hayden's words, never recovered from that. But born up by his wife, who is a Christian believer, by the nuns who educated him, and by this wonderful uh, Brisbane nun who influenced him so much. So I write about Bill. He was 
blessed was he amongst to be amongst such women, you know, and mm. he found his way back to God. And every day now he prays and he goes to mass and he does everything he can to support the church and to give witness to um, to Christ. And um, I think Bill is a tremendously decent person. It was hard for him to do the interview because he's quite unwell. Mm. And uh, I found his story of coming back to God under the influence of these good women uh, very moving. So all of these guys, I'm not interested in their politics in this book. I'm interested in their in their religious belief and their religious experience. Mm. Greg, thank you so very much for your time today. Your insights are, are, are really um, a lesson for us all. It's um, really inspiring that you have um, gone to uh, these lengths to to bring all of this together. So uh, thank you very much for your time today and, and congratulations on, on the publication of this book. Thanks so much, Jamie. Really good to be with you. Thanks a lot.